Hey everyone, welcome back to The Well Podcast. I'm Amber and I'm your host. Whether it's your first time listening or you're back for more, we are so glad you found us. We are almost halfway through our second year of The Well. May 19th, that's our last date before summer. You know you're mad at yourself because April was busier than you thought it would be and you couldn't squeeze in the live event. So come on in May, plan a dinner with some friends before summer hits, and everyone in the Carolina goes their separate ways for three months. I would love to see you all there. I would love to meet you all. Who are all of you? Where are you going this summer? Do you listen when you commute to work or clean house? Are you beach people? Are you mountain people? Are you touring major league ballparks with kids and friends? Are you at home doing DIY projects and podcast binging? Who is listening? Where are you guys? We would love to hear from you. Tag us at Shandon Women when you share our podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Send us a message on our site, shandon.org women. There is a response section under the well, but you can just say, hey, we would love to hear from you. Rate our podcast on iTunes. It'll help more people hear these great stories and give us some feedback. May 19th, 7 p.m. Come see us. Guys, I love, love, love today's story. Mary Scott is a self-described good girl striving for perfection. She is so sweet and kind. She is just as adorable as she sounds, and she has wisdom far beyond her years. She is new to town and to our church, but she is one of those people that you feel like you've just known her forever the minute you meet her. She runs her own podcast, so she is already seasoned with the whole microphone and talking thing, which really took me some getting used to. You are going to love her love of God. Her positivity is contagious and simply inspiring. Let's meet Mary Scott. I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I lived there basically until I went to college. I went to Clemson when I, went to, when I was 18. Um, <laughs> we won't forgive her. We won't hold it over her head. Um, so, yeah, I lived in Charlotte my whole life. So, okay. um, what was your family like? So it was me and my brother, Robert, who's two years younger than me, and my mom and dad. And really, that was just our normal little life. And um, kind of throughout basically all of my childhood, there was always like a faint um, reality that I had a sick parent, but it wasn't necessarily always prevalent in our family. Okay, so your mom got really sick probably about what age? Well, the first like indicator was probably when I was about two, and my parents were in Hawaii um, for a business trip, and my mom's lungs collapsed. So that was a few months. My family's all here; they know the details more than me. Um, <laughs> but that was probably three-ish months of them being in Hawaii, and that kind of like set the tone for my parents um, or my mom's health journey. And she, at that point was diagnosed with like a non-smoker's emphysema, which is a lung disease. Um, so it sort of was like always like, a, it sounds weird, but if you think of like a, a photo and you're like putting a filter on it, it was like there was always a filter on our life of like sickness, but it didn't necessarily like rule our lives until I was probably in fifth grade. Okay. So where did you go um, when your parents went to Hawaii? Yeah, I lived with my grandparents, my Emmy and Popsy, who my Emmy's here. Um, and we lived, and that was kind of like when, I mean, we've always had an incredible family, but when my mom was sick, probably starting then and then throughout all of it, our family just carried us. So I lived with my grandparents and with my aunts and uncles. And that, yeah, that's was probably when I was about three, and Robert was like 15 months, probably. So, okay. yeah. And I know you you talk a lot about how 
you lived with your aunts and your grandparents and how like that was really the Lord's blessing because 100%. they took yes. care of you the way that your mom and dad would. And 100%. It was yes. And that's such not... a sweet, rich time for you. Yes, mm-hmm. completely. Yeah. My cousins are my siblings. We are all very close and it was like a very large blessing because that's not everyone's story. And so I feel like I have lots of parents. <laughs> I always laugh and say that, but yeah, that kind of was like the beginning of that lifestyle, if you will. Okay. So all through childhood, you're kind of, you've got a sick mom Mm -hmm. and there are seasons where you've got to live with somebody else. Um, What do you think you did as a child to cope with those things? Yeah. I think from the earliest that I can remember, I kind of, no one told me I had to do this, but I like had like a self-proclaimed decision that I was going to be perfect because then no one could have any issues with me and I couldn't be an added burden. Um, But at that point, I had to turn somewhere. And I think that's when I probably began an unusually unhealthy relationship with food. Um, So that was kind of always where I turned. And I don't think really until this process of the well um, would I be able to like track that back and see it. But I think that was probably where I turned to the most just for comfort and fun and excitement and all that. And I think, too, um, I was surrounded heavily with just women and beautiful women and women who really cared. And I think I've started listening to lies early on about just food in general and how it related Mm -hmm. to the body and just believing lies about food and unhealthy lies about food and just always feeling unhappy with myself in that area. Yeah. And we talk, it makes sense. I mean, I, when people get sick, you bring a meal. Like you it, want, yep, yeah, they people, <laughs> you bring a meal and that's lots what you do. Meals, yeah, lots yeah, of bread. Lots of bread. Yeah. And yeah, lots of, lots of bread, pasta, lasagna. <laughs> All the pasta. <laughs> um, but we talked about this like torment between like, you know, recognizing that the world was saying, you know, some of these things were bad and this tension between the two for you. Yes, and yes. And I think, yeah, Robert, my brother and I, I think we just grew up loving food. And I think my mom unintentionally um, like started putting boundaries with food, which, as she should have, but like locking the pantry, kind of just like helping us try and be better. But I think for me, it just created um, unintentionally. For me, it just created like this really unhealthy view of food and um, just health in general and trying to hide and sneak. But I would always try and do it in secret because, of course, that would ruin my image, right? Right. You're trying <laughs> to be perfect. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that wouldn't make you perfect. Uh-huh. So your mom was sick. Yes. How long was she sick? So um, probably it was just always there from like that two years old till about fifth grade. Um, in fifth grade, my mom went into the hospital for pneumonia and it turned into a lot more than that. And she was in the ICU for almost 200 days and we didn't see her that whole time because we were so little. Um, and she was, you know, in a coma and out of a coma in a coma. And so when she came out of the hospital, she was like 88 pounds. Um, and we had a full-time nurse living with us from Kenya, Mary Gatata, which is funny later because I met my husband in Kenya, but that's another story. Um, but she moved in with us, and we kind of still had that family rotation that whole year. So when my mom was in the hospital, my dad never, never left her. So all my aunties like were on rotation with us, and like I said, that whole family unity thing continued. Um, but anyway, so she came out of the hospital, and was attached to full-time oxygen. We had Mary Gatata living with us. 
Um, so everyone rotating in, she was kind of just like secluded to our house um, and was waiting for a double lung and heart transplant for about a year and a half. Um, so by the time she ended up getting that, I was in seventh grade-ish. Um, and she got two lungs and a new heart. And then we kind of entered into this series of years where it was gonna be like however long our my mom's body was going to allow a different person's organs to live in her body because there's usually a rejection period. Um, so she started rejecting her organs when I was a sophomore in high school. And that was in like spring. And then early in junior year of high school, I was going to Windy Gap. I went to Christian school all growing up. Um, and we were going to like our spiritual discipleship weekend at Windy Gap. And my mom went into an appointment at Duke and fell back into a coma and then eventually had a stroke and passed away while she was there. So that was, I was 16, yeah. So what did you know of the Lord during this time? Um, In your childhood? Yeah, so, I mean, honestly, I don't really know a day apart from the Lord. I grew up in a really solid um, Christian home. I accepted the Lord into my heart, was really nurtured well, not only with family, but also all my teachers and stuff growing up. But I don't think it was probably until um, like that sophomore, junior year-ish time when I knew my mom was taking a turn for the worse that I had to allow my head and my heart to connect. Um, So one day, for example, I don't even remember when in this process it all was, but my mom had to be rushed to the ER for something and the ambulance came to our house and we had just gotten home from school and my mom was obviously in tears and just apologizing to us um, that this was happening and that she was our mom and not being able to take care of us. Um, And I think that was the first point where I was like, I don't know what to do. So I just walked up to my room for the first, not for the first time, like I think I'd always prayed, like I knew how to talk to God and all that. But I think that was the day that I had to kind of make them connect. Like I couldn't not anymore, you know? Um, So I remember sitting at the end of my bed and journaling for the first time and just feeling, that was like my first true moment of surrender, if you will. Um, Because, you know, at that time, or from this point on, I would begin to like operate out of my theology about God, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, did I believe, um, like I needed to be good enough so maybe God wouldn't like take my mom away from me. Because I think at the biggest, the worst thing that I could conceive at this point in my life was being a junior in high school and losing my mom because that was the year of AP classes and it would be really hard and surely God wouldn't do that to me. And that ended up being my story. And so I think I had to learn early on from that point on that I couldn't, like what I believed about God was how I was gonna operate out of that, right? So um, if I believed my behavior was gonna dictate his actions, then I would have to be good or maybe that wouldn't happen. And I think that's when I learned um, that I had to trust in God's sovereignty, but I didn't know what that looked like at that time. Yeah. So how did you process your mom dying? Uh, lots of therapy. <laughs> um, no, seriously, like 10 years. Um, and I'm still in counseling. I love it. Um, but no, um, I think I always say that like I lost my mom, but I gained like 50. And it's like just the Lord's grace. Like it's not lost on me that I work at Proverbs with like a zillion wise women constantly invested in my life and pouring into me and speaking truth into me, but also like all my, all the women in my family. Um, and then my counselor really just helping me see like God isn't a God who's sitting in the throne and deciding what to do to me based on how I act. Yeah. Um, Cause we will live out of our theology. Like if we believe something about God, we begin to operate from that place. And so it was just me um, taking all of that 
really just false lies, I think, too. I, I, now that I'm like, I tell myself I'm heels on the other side of this. But now that I look back, I can see how the enemy was so subtle and just speaking half-truths into my mind about who God was. And just in the last two years of just being married and having to go through like other hard things, it's become a thing for me to like be almost like a lie detector um, to see when the enemy's speaking to me. And I think at that point, I was just not mature enough in my faith to understand that the, what I was hearing from the enemy, I thought was God. Right. And the reality is, is like a half truth is a lie, but I didn't understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I believed that, you know, my actions did dictate that. So, so in, in all that, how can a good God allow your mom to die? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I can process it now, you know, almost 10 years later, nine years later. Um, and I'm, I can say I'm thankful that it happened because genuinely I don't know who I'd be without that. But I think, you know, I had to con- like comprehend in my brain, like how can, how can a God do that? It's not supposed to be this way, right? Um, I don't know if anyone of you has read that book this year. Um, <laughs> but, you know, how, how can I live in what, you know, a, per- a person who longs for perfection when I don't have a perfect life? And so I just had to really decide what I believed about God. And I had, you know, it just, it's what I'm learning, and I learned then and I'm learning now, it's that when I choose to surrender and not hold on to what I think a good God should do, I'm more likely to be able to understand why he's doing it. And I think, too, I had to understand that it wasn't God's design for my mom to die. You know what I mean? It's his design for us to love him, but sin. Um, And so when when I began the journey of understanding God's sovereignty and his desire for wholeness, that doesn't come with the absence of pain. Um, and so, yeah, I had to say, like, how, how, what do I believe about God? Like, how can God do that for me? How, like, how can this happen? Um, but as I've grown and seen it in light of my life now, I can understand why. And it's just for him to, I think it's for us to know him more mm-hmm. and for others to see him displayed in our life. I think, you know, I all of us have a choice when we walk through pain, like, will this victimize me or will I walk in victory in this? And so we could, we could choose. And I think I had, I had to choose to walk in victory because if not, I would be like chained to bitterness of why did my mom die? And I couldn't do that. You know, Lisa T always says it's easier. It's just as hard to um, be bitter as it is to forgive. And it's not like I needed to forgive God, but I think I needed to just walk in his grace, even in this situation, for my own, like, healing. Yeah. Mary Scott always says, she says, she's got sticky, she calls them sticky statements. She's got, we're she's, tra- <laughs> she's we're trained. Got a sticky statement. Yeah, she's trained. She's like, I, got, I got a statement for this, this oh sticky my, statement. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, <laughs> so you, you're mourning your mom's death, and then you, you and I, you started sharing with me, like, when, and, I, you know, thankfully, I've never had a parent die, but, when you lose a parent at a young age, it changes everything. It not 100%. just changes your relationship or the fact that you've lost a parent, but you've almost lost a family. 100%. Yeah. yeah. I think just, and this is just through the help of 
learning how to process things. But I, I don't, you know, it was easy for people to understand that I needed to mourn my mom, but I don't think people think about everything that you have to mourn with the loss of just an individual. And so for me to move forward healthily into whatever God was going to call my family into next, I had to actively mourn the loss of my, what my family was. That meant, like, I have a new dad now. Um, not because he's a new dad, but he doesn't have his wife anymore, and I don't have the same brother anymore because my brother now lost his mom. And so it, I had to not only walk a road of healing from losing a parent, but I needed to wholeheartedly do the work of losing or grieving the loss of just my family so that I could walk into something new because there was going to be something new because we serve a new God, a God of new beginnings. And so there was going to be a new beginning of my family, but I don't think I was prepared or knew that I was going to have to do that, um, but I did. So what is, how does your family look now? Yeah, so now we have a new family, and I have a stepmom and a stepbrother, and um, it's just a new family, and that's what it is. And so I think what, I'm, what I learned in the process was, you know, for us to mourn anything, like even when Dana and I moved here, I had to mourn what Savannah was to me and the lessons I learned in that place and how God grew me there. But like we can't wholeheartedly move into a new season without grieving the loss of a new one. So that is our new family. Yeah. yeah. Plus my husband. <laughs> Just a small part. So you, go to, you're, you graduate high school, you're working through this whole process of grieving your mom's death. Um, you go to college and then what? Yeah, and then I met Daniel, okay. um, freshman year of college in Africa. Um, we were on a mission trip and began um, dating. And I always say it was like such a gift from the Lord. We talk about it now in our family. Like it's so fun because Daniel entered into our life right when my family was becoming new. And I think that, you know, that was, it's fun now because we only know each other with Daniel in it, but it was also an incredible blessing to me um, because I needed him to be able to understand what it was going to be like, if that makes sense. Um, so he entered into our family at that point and we got married five days after graduating college, um, which was crazy. And we embarked on our military journey. Um, so yeah, I'm an army wife. So Daniel... Yeah, we got married and just went from children to adulthood in like a matter of 30 seconds. Um, and it was crazy. So what <laughs> happened in that process when you went from a child to an adult in five days? Well, I think I looked at marriage like it was going to be um, kind of like, I, I think I believed in the back of my head, like I already have walked through my thing, like God's not going to like... I had my thing, you know, like, we're fine. We all came out the other Which side. Which is a big thing if your mom dies. Right. right. So, like, surely I'm going to go into marriage. It's going to be a breeze. And it wasn't. Um, <laughs> and it is, it, it's okay. Um, but I think I looked at um, what I was walking into as, like, my saving grace, kind of like it's going to be a new family again, and we're going to do our own thing, and it's going to be awesome. And it just wasn't. I think, not that it like our marriage is completely fine and healthy. It's just like, I didn't have a chance to do that whole morning of a season thing that I was talking about. So, which was crazy because at the end of my senior year, I started working at Proverbs and commuting and got married and we moved to Oklahoma into a Holiday and Express Hotel. Bless it. Um, <laughs> for six That's months. every woman dreams of. Yes. I'm going to get married and move into the Holiday Inn Motel. Uh, yeah. Um, and it just was all the things, you know, I, I had done a lot of hard work to be where I was. Like I had, 
I had basically became a 50-year-old when I was 11 because I had to. Um, and so I had like almost prided myself in being you know, extremely emotionally healthy. I had done all the work, you know. I was gonna be fine. Marriage was gonna be a breeze because I was smart, you know. I already taught, I read all the parenting books when I was 14. <laughs> um, so, but um, Daniel hadn't really experienced anything like I had experienced before until we got married. So Daniel's dad, um, you might know Chris and Sharon, they um, go to Shandon, um, but Daniel's dad was dying of brain cancer. And so he, at 22, was now having to walk through everything that I had already walked through for 10 years. And I think because I had put an unfair expectation on Daniel being my savior and Daniel being, like I had protected everyone else from my emotions for so long that I didn't think I needed to do that from him. And I didn't leave any room for him to have his own, you know? Yeah, we talked about that. So how did you react to Daniel's grief? Um, not well, <laughs> because I, you know, I had all the answers. I had done all the work and I had no, you know, his life exploded in front of him within minutes. You know, he became my husband. He became a soldier, which is like a whole thing. Um, he was separated from his parents, um, who were like the bedrock of his faith and um, wasn't around his dad, who's his best friend in the whole world. And he didn't know how to process it. And, you know, I'm over here trying to process it for him without allowing God to do what God had already done in me. And um, I just really became a Pharisee <laughs> and was really trying to control um, how Daniel processed life and without just allowing God to write his story like he had done mine. Yeah, we talked about how... Um, normally, like when you walk through something, you, you have compassion for the people who are walking through it. But for you, it was almost like you couldn't stand bearing another yeah, man's grief. I couldn't bear it because yeah. I tried to protect everyone else's grief for so long that when Daniel needed to, I was, it scared me, really, it scared me. And because I learned from such a young age to control, to protect myself, I wanted to control him to make him not be sad yeah. or to make him not, you know, question things that I had already done all the questioning for. Um, but I think I had to get to a place and after really listening to the Lord, hear him say like, I have to write Daniel's story, not you and you're a really bad God. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, <laughs> it's true. Um, and so, yeah, it was just probably about a year and a half of me fighting that um, for him and that affecting us and, um, but coming to a place kind of of that second moment of surrender, Daniel was deploying last year and it scared me to death. Not because he was like going off to war or anything like that, but because I couldn't but imagine. But that's scary. Yeah, <laughs> which he was fine. Um, but <laughs> it was him moving and going somewhere where I couldn't control him. Yeah. Um, and that was really more terrifying to me than anything because I couldn't, I couldn't bear the fact that he was going to be bearing so much pain without me. Like I could like do it for him or save him. Um, so I went before he was deploying about like four days before I was just like really completely full of anxiety because I didn't want him to go because I couldn't imagine him being without me. And I just felt like the Lord whispered to my heart, you know, Daniel's my son and I love him more than you do. And I think and it wasn't until I had that like kind of second moment of surrender because for some reason, Daniel 
in his life is it's different than your parent in the sense that like it just feels different. And so it was almost sure. scarier to surrender him than it was to surrender my mom. Um, but I had to like for me to walk forward and not crumble and fall. I had to do that second moment of surrender where I just had to release him. And it, yeah, yeah. So Daniel gets deployed and y'all are apart for nine long? months. Nine, nine months. months. Yeah. And was. How was that? You know, I think it would have on the outside looked like it would have been the, probably the worst thing we could have walked through. But I think it was actually like God's div- like divine grace and that he had to be stripped away from me or he need like it was for both of us. He needed to go to kind of be free of me and I needed to go and practice surrender. And I think the Lord just does, you know, when we just get in our own way and I get in my own way because I, I still try and pick up parts of my life that I think I can do better than God um, because it just seems like my plan's always going to work. Um, and so I think we both needed, he needed to go um, to figure things out for himself and I needed to just let him do that to find that complete freedom. Yeah. Where did you go while he was deployed? I moved in with my best friend and her two-year-old son, um, which was crazy for nine months. Yeah, she found out she was pregnant the day our husbands left. Um, <laughs> so we, I literally watched her grow for nine months, but they got back and she gave birth and it was fine. Um, but yeah, so that was, it was a very interesting nine months looking back on it. But I think the Lord did a lot of work inside of my heart in that nine months. So obviously Daniel came home, which we all celebrate. Um, and you're living in Columbia, um, you're back, you're with Daniel's family, um, uh, what does it look like living in Columbia, and what's the desire of your heart? I think, well, and really, it's wonderful living in Columbia, I, like, it's not lost on me, I knew that when we came to Columbia, I was like, I'm gonna go to the well, it's gonna be awesome, (laughs) and here I am, Um, (laughs) and then they're gonna put me on the stage, (laughs) yeah, and so I think it's ironic to me that I, you know, I really pride myself in being, you know, really healthy, like, whole, and doing fine, but it wasn't until we started doing this process that I realized that I was still carrying a bunch of shame and issues with food still. And so, you know, we're, we've been married almost three years and I, you know, there are questions of children are coming up and things like that, but I didn't realize still how enchained I was to body image and food because that's the one scariest part of me becoming a mom is my body. It's not the mothering part. It's not um, the marriage plus parenting part. It's, it's the fact that I'm still completely consumed with myself and how I look and giving myself over. But it wasn't until this that I knew that, <laughs> ironically. <laughs> yes, little do you know that if you um, say yes to the will, it might be a therapy <laughs> session. <laughs> for weeks. Yeah, for, for, it was months. months. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> it was good. Um, so what do you think is holding you back now from? From that, yeah. I think it's just me being okay with myself. And yeah. So where's your need for grace? um, I think my need for grace is in that I don't have to perform or be the best version of me um, for God to do what he needs to do in my life. You know, I think, like I said, I'd like to pretend like I know what's best for everyone, including myself. And 
you know, it's grace for me when I um, just look back and think I don't, I don't have to like hold myself to a standard or hold myself to a place of perfection to walk obediently or to allow God to do something in my life like a baby right. or whatever it is. So how have you experienced grace in the last few weeks? Um, well, like I said, I had no idea that this was something I was still really struggling with. But I think, you know, this is something you and I have talked about in a lot in the last few weeks of just, you know, God desires to set us completely free. And I thought I was completely free. Um, but I was free enough, you know, I, like, you have a podcast that talks about vulnerability, but it was like I was vulnerable enough without being too vulnerable, right, you know? Um, and I think for me now, I'm realizing there were still huge parts of my life that God desired to set me free, but I didn't realize it until we were processing. And I think in the last few weeks, I think it's been more and more apparent to me how much of an idol this is in my heart because as the Lord's been refining me, um, it's just been not the prettiest process. And I, I heard the other day on a podcast that you can kind of have a good indicator of something being an idol of your heart based on how you respond when it doesn't go your way. And that is literally the last eight weeks. You know, it's just been, I, I just didn't realize how much of a hold this had on me. Whether a few weeks ago I was having a photo shoot for my podcast and I felt huge and ugly and all these things, and I literally had an uproar where I was like yelling and sobbing because I was so wrapped up in this and I had no idea that I was so unhappy. And I, it was a complete indicator that this just had a massive hold on me still. And so I think Grace, in the last eight weeks or however long we've been preparing for this, um, it's just been me coming to terms with it's not about me, and it's also not up to me, and I have to surrender another, yeah, and it's just like a continual act of surrender of my life, like one day it's going to be surrender of my children, one day it's going to be the surrender of my husband in a new season, or me in a new season, um, but this has just been surrendering my, I don't even know what you call it, but my desire, mm -hmm. or my um, outward appearance, um, so yeah, it's just, it's been, I think in those moments when I've had a complete explosion, um, it's just been the Lord telling me that like, I don't have to hold this anymore or I don't have to like muster or hustle or strive in this area or really any area mm -hmm. anymore. Like it's just not up to me. It's been such a sweet privilege to walk with Mary Scott in this process. I think she thought she was going to get up here and talk about like loss and grief. And through this process, God has revealed things to her where she'd come to us and say, okay, so really this is my struggle. Yeah. <laughs> really, this is my struggle. Mm -hmm. And it's been beautiful to watch because you are such a woman of God. Like you, you. are, you have a podcast called Behind, Behind the, the Bliss. <laughs> And she talks about real things, really hard things, and where God's met her. But even on the other side of that, you have found, oh my goodness, the Lord is still printing me. Um, I found this verse, Isaiah 5, that I want to read to you. I have not read this to her, but I believe it sums you up beautifully where you are. Um, because you're so godly. Um, you're so lovely. Thank you. Um, and you have so many things to offer. Isaiah 18, 5. 
Before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. Mm -hmm. I see this beautiful flower that has bloomed and there's these, just these tiny little thorns left. And God took these pruning shears to prune away these, these things in your life to leave nothing but the flower. Mm. And it's been such a privilege to watch God do that in this process. Thank you. Um, Thank so you. how the Lord meet you um, as you prepared your story at the well? Well, I'm glad that you said that because I think we can get to a place in our walk with the Lord where we assume we know everything and, like, we don't need to... It just doesn't become as personal. We assume we've, like met our match, we're done, we can just like worship and all the things, we're healed. And like what a shame it is to get to that place because God is so big and has such grand plans for us that like the moment we get to a place where we assume we're done, it's just his grace that he's like, oh no, no, I got more. (laughs) And I think, I don't know, I think I'm grateful that it's just his grace. It's his love for me that he's willing to continue to prune me. Because, mm-hmm. um, oh my gosh, I want to keep bearing fruit, you know? Yeah. I want to keep yeah. bearing fruit. But I wouldn't be able to if that refinement didn't come. Um, but I think, you know, on the outside, I would look nothing like the woman at the well. But the woman at the well was completely broken inside. And the way I've felt in the past with fear and hurt and grief and the way I feel now where I feel the, the pressure to build my own kingdom and be perfect, I can hear the Lord say that I can lay it down. You know, I don't need to earn my right standing. I don't need to um, prove myself to everyone to make sure that everyone thinks I'm fine. I don't have to do any of that anymore because he's already done that for me right. and I don't have to prove myself. And from the outside looking in, you probably don't look anything like the woman at the well, but we're all similar in that you are there thirsty for a drink of grace. Yeah. Yeah. So can we thank you all for, yeah. Thank you very much. How many of us are like Mary Scott? In our efforts to follow Jesus' example and be Christ-like, that we swing the pendulum past Christ-like and find ourselves being a Pharisee which is the sweet Christian way of saying judgmental, which is ugly and hard to hear and something none of us want. How many of us are admitting to our small group or even harder to our spouses and best friends that we are doing the same thing, that we are trying to control other people's behavior or deciding for ourselves that they aren't doing it right, thinking we could decide better for them? We do that though. Why do we do that? Why do we even think we are involved in someone else's process? Mary Scott humbly explained this for us because we want to be in control. We do this when we do not trust God to take control. It's mind-blowing that we get so caught up in ourselves and what we feel responsible for that we think we can be wiser than God. Wiser than God. Mary Scott got through the loss of a parent at a young age She has made this beautiful space to see how God refined her through this. God does grow us and make us stronger. He allows us to experience difficult things, many we wish we would not have to cope with. 
But God does not make us cope with those things alone. If we allow him, he holds us in his embrace and carries us through. We don't come out perfect. We may even come out very scarred, but God grows us. As Megan read that passage in Isaiah about God preparing us for growth, trimming and cutting, I couldn't help but realize I've heard that verse before and focused on the growth. But the preparation, the preparation includes cuts and pruning shears. It's what God knows we need to become more fruitful. Mary Scott said, I'm just so grateful that he is willing to continue to prune me. I love that. I was like, yes. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. Isaiah 18, 5. Come see us at Shandon at the next Well Friends. We miss you already.